Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians in academia, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We will touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about IBM's new debate machine. And then we talk about a survey that suggests that companies aren't becoming data-driven quickly enough. So let's get started. Over the years, IBM has seemingly always been interested in finding challenges that humans historically excel at, and then train machines to beat the humans. When I was little, I remember hearing about IBM's Deep Blue beating the famous Gary Kasparov at chess, and I guess I just wasn't feeling too impressed about it because chess itself is such a methodical game to begin with. Yeah, but but at the time, I, I feel like it just seemed pretty cool, maybe because of the man versus machine aspect of it. But. Yeah, that's true. It kind of like was the thing that got the ball rolling of yeah. all man versus machine competitions. Right, exactly. Well, when I was learning chess, uh, sort of around that time, I had set up my own computer engine that I would play against on, on my computer. And this is really easy to do. So it's not like I had to program anything, but just seeing how easily it beat me like every time. <laughs> um, I guess I didn't feel too surprised that the best human chess player could be beat by a machine. I mean, the machine just moves so fast. It didn't really spend any time to ponder moves. Um, of course, I'm talking from my personal experience. I am sure the computer had to work a lot harder to beat Gary Kasparov. But more recently, IBM took the headlines when its own Watson uh, AI participated in this high-stakes Jeopardy tournament, beating out star human players like Ken Jennings. Now, that to me was far more impressive. As a Jeopardy fan, I know that Jeopardy questions are worded in this rather cryptic way. Well, not so cryptic once you get used to it, but usually the hints that are dropped about the answer, um, or rather the question, uh, they're sometimes punny or roundabout, and it just seems surprising that a computer can parse that kind of language in such a fast and accurate way. But since the success of Watson, it almost felt like IBM disappeared from this AI race radar. Watson was originally touted as being able to solve complicated real-world challenges, like maybe even finding a cure for cancer. And even at this point, it hasn't quite lived up those expectations. But IBM did train in AI for a new kind of challenge. Indeed, and it has been kind of a long time in the making, um, and, and this AI is called Project Debater. It's made by IBM, and it was sort of debuted in, um, in June 2018, and this is a pretty hefty machine. It's got 28 cores, 768 gigabytes of memory, um, supported by four servers that each have 64 gigabytes of memory and two terabytes of hard disk space. That's quite a bit more memory slash hard drive space than our computers, for sure. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Enough brain power, perhaps, to put to a test on a live public debate against 31-year-old debate champion Harish Natarajan. Uh, Natarajan actually holds the record in the number of debate competition victories. An effective debater, I suppose, yeah, needs to be able to harness logical reasoning and deliver it in a way that is compelling and comprehensible to, to a general audience. 
Um, so that seems like a difficult task for a machine and, uh, and I guess for a human too. <laughs> yeah, but of course they didn't just pick any human. They picked the best of the best. Um, so this was a throwdown that was actually quite interesting. The debate took place on Monday, February 11th at IBM's Think Conference in downtown San Francisco. The topic of the debate was whether preschools should be subsidized. Project Debater took the position of for and Natarajan took the position of against. And they just had went, went at it. Wow. So what was the structure of the debate? Well, both contestants, human and machine, were given the topic at the same time, and they had 15 minutes to think, to think and prepare a four-minute speech. And that four-minute speech was subsequently followed by a four-minute rebuttal and finally a two-minute summary. And, and so then how did it go? I, I assume it's all recorded and viewable online as well? Yes, and uh, it's actually available on YouTube, so we'll link the video on our show notes. Um, I did watch parts of it. It's really, really fascinating. Um, some aspects are exactly as you would expect. For example, the AI really just sounds like an AI, <laughs> more like an AI than I probably would have expected. Like, for example, I have an Amazon Echo and a Google Home at home, and, you know, there's even some minute differences in the natural soundingness of these two different engines. Like Google Home sounds quite a bit more natural and, and just easy to, to listen to and, and, and talk to compared to the Amazon Echo. Um, and when we think about where Project Debater falls along that spectrum, it sounds way more robotic than both. And I think that was part of the problem, that as a human listening, it, it's kind of hard to follow the machine's logic. It might have been very, very fact-based, but it almost felt like a presenter reading off their PowerPoint slides where everything is in full sentences, um, but without much pausing at the end of a complete thought. I wonder why they didn't make the voice more natural. It, um, it just seems like that would be an easy task compared to the larger goal of actually debating. Speaking of easier tasks, right, this other thing that, that clearly illustrated a shortcoming of Project Debater was that at one instance, it had mispronounced lives as lives. Oh. So it was actually on a roll giving a number of arguments when suddenly something just didn't sound right to me. So I rewound and several times to hear and figure out and write down what it said. And it was saying, high quality preschool is one of the best investments of public dollars resulting in children who fare better on tests and have more successful lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's an unfortunate error. Uh Again, it seems like it would be easily fixable. Maybe it's not, but I, I don't know. Yeah, with all this low-hanging fruit, it's almost like they decided, let's, let's just worry about the more complicated questions and not, not dress this up, right? Yeah. Um, which is, as you say, like kind of unfortunate. Like They could actually make it look a lot better on the surface if it didn't have these very surfacey uh, flaws. Um, what's also really interesting to me, just as another highlight, was that this AI didn't try to pretend that it was human. And this is surprising to me because I kind of thought that the way that we use our machine learning algorithms, we sort of train them on a lot of data. And in this case, most likely human generated data. So in my mind, it's probably been, been trained on human versus human debate transcripts. And from that, I would have just expected it to speak more from a human point of view. For one instance, um, there's, there's a point where it says, while I cannot experience poverty directly and have no complaints concerning my own standards of living, I still have the following to share. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that, uh, yeah, that's a little strange. <laughs> 
What I will say though, in regards to just one aspect where the AI far exceeded my expectations was that it did probably by design pair back statistics and facts before using them in its argument. For example, there was a sentence that said, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports that universal full-day preschool creates significant economic savings in healthcare, as well as decreased crime, welfare dependence, and child abuse. So like, there are a lot of such instances where it would cite scientific studies and reports. And I'm sure that with all that hard drives, disk space that it has, if it needed to, it could definitely have the exact numbers of the estimated effect sizes. But probably the programmers made a choice to say, okay, those numbers are just too specific. We don't really need them to convey uh, the message. And so its statements were really all about things like significant improvement or significant positive effects. And certainly that probably made it easier for the audience to digest. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And so, um, so how did the human do? Without saying, I think the chosen human here is not just any human, as I said, being a superlative in his sport. Uh, his arguments were well-crafted. His delivery was polished. Uh, his main point was that we do want all of these good outcomes that Project Debater outlined, uh, but there's a cost, right? And so if we think about the costs, maybe we also need to think about what other uses we could do or what other ways we can spend that money to impact society um, in an even more positive way. Hmm. And then what, um, what happened with the rebuttals? How did they each do? The rebuttal was also really interesting because it, it kind of proved that the AI wasn't just sort of spitting out words, right? Which is kind of maybe how I initially was thinking about it because it was just speaking, speaking, speaking. But it was actually also listening to the debate champ's speech. And, and being a seasoned pro, our debate champ did speak very eloquently, but inevitably there were occasional stumbles and stutters and sometimes just retracking words. He's not reading from a script, so this is just bound to happen. It's just human error. And I would think that this would be really hard for a machine to follow um, or, or just to parse, but you know, it seemed to do pretty well there. Wow, that's, a, that's quite incredible. And um, then was there a winner or how did this work? Did they declare a winner? Yes. So with the audience about, I think, 800 or so people, um, they had journalists, software engineers, and just anybody sort of in tech, um, they got the audience to a vote and the audience did vote the human, not Arajan, <laughs> as our winner. So, you know, this is the first time maybe in a very public setting that IBM's machine lost. Yay, points for humans. <laughs> <laughs> but we should say that this is likely just sort of a really hard problem to begin with, right? Uh, the winning yeah. debater needed to structure the argument well to appeal to its audience. And the audience consists of humans. And I think humans know humans pretty well. That's true. If um, Maybe if we had computers voting for the winner, it's um, quite possible that the AI would, would win then, I guess. That's quite possible. And, and some of the comments from news outlets were suggesting that the machine this time around, which is really great at pulling facts into its arguments, but not so great at connecting emotionally. And, you know, we're all very emotional human beings, right? So maybe someday, someday machines may be just as good as we are at appealing to our emotions and mm. manipulating us. Oh, yes. Just imagine the possibilities there. 
Indeed. I, I guess we could just imagine, right? Someday, if computers are just as good as, say, lawyers at picking apart arguments, we could even have computers replace lawyers for both sides in court. And then we wouldn't have the issue where the side that had the means, the wealth for hiring the better lawyer, always winning. Yeah. And then maybe the judge and jury could be robots as well. <laughs> <laughs> this is starting to sound very dystopian, but... This isn't news for many of us in the data science world, but companies have been making a push to become more data-driven in their decision-making and product, product development, among other areas. Yes, and, and marketing has especially become quite data-driven as they try to target specific consumers with ads um, for products that would be most attractive to them. Exactly. So there's a question of how well companies are doing at actually shifting their culture um, the, the Harvard Business Review recently reported on the outcome of a survey that was given to 64 C-level technology and business executives. And so by C-level, um, they mean kind of like the, the high ups, like the CEO, um, the chief operating officer, chief information officer, and, and those types. And um, the executives that participated were, um, were from large companies, um, companies like American Express or Ford, GE, GM, Johnson & Johnson, um, those, those sorts of companies. Ah, interesting. So what was the survey on? Um, so uh, a company called New Advantage Partners or M NVP, um, they came up with a survey. And um, just as a side note, MVP states on their website that they are a strategic um, they are strategic advisors in data-driven business innovation, and um, they help Fortune 1000 companies leverage data as an asset, become data-driven, forge a data culture, and innovate with data. So, so it's a company that's very data-focused, and they're trying to help others to be data-focused. And so they put together this survey, and um, it was actually first given back in 2012, kind of when the, you know, the big data stuff was really beginning to hit the mainstream. And um, so for, for the survey this year, they had um, several themes that they were focusing on. And um, so in particular, trying to address um, certain questions. So I'll just read off a couple of the questions so you can get a sense of what they were looking at. Um, so they were looking at what the current state of um, big data and AI investment is, um, and how is the pace of big data and AI investment changing and um, other questions like, are firms becoming more data-driven? So they're really trying to get a sense of um, how companies are progressing in shifting their culture to um, be more data-focused and AI-focused. Uh, so the survey was sort of asking the C-level executives to report on sort of how their own companies were incorporating um, big data and, and making data more central to their business? Yes, yeah, that's, um, that's what it seemed to be focusing on. And I mean, in some of the questions, the executives were, it was more, some of them were there just kind of self-reporting, but how well they thought their company was doing. And you'll see when I, I I'm going to note um, some of the results and um, the, some of how the exec would respond depends on how they interpret words like data culture. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's um, a very interesting survey, but um, it is still open to the interpretation, of course, of the um, participants in the survey. I don't know that I've ever heard the term data culture before. That sounds, that sounds definitely open to interpretation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so since the title of this article is Companies Are Failing in Their Efforts to Become Data-Driven, I hope that's not just clickbait. I'm assuming the results of the survey were not very positive. What did they end up finding? 
Yeah, I mean, they um, they highlight in the Harvard Business Review article um, what they consider to be kind of the, the most, what they say, alarming results. And um, so just to highlight a few of those points, um, they found that 72% of survey participants report that they have yet to forge a data culture. And so as we said, like what data culture means is open for interpretation, but at least 72% feel that um, their company has not yet um, successfully done that. Then 69% report that they have not created a data-driven organization. So then there's still that interpretation of at what point do you become data-driven versus not data-driven. So at least they are not, not feeling like they would call themselves a data-driven organization. 53% um, state that they are not yet treating data as a business asset. And then 52% admit that they are not competing on data and analytics. So um, those were some of the, I guess, um, unfortunate side of how, how businesses are progressing in terms of what the survey was looking at. Well, one comment that I have as you were reading through that is like the first three items really hinged upon some some terms that I, I think are just, as you say, kind of open to interpretation, right? There's the data culture, the data-driven organization, the business asset. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does take time for major change to happen at a company, but let's say 53% are saying that they're not treating data as a business asset. Well, that first of all means that a lot of companies are, uh, but also like just what does that mean to be, to have a business asset, right? Like how many employees do they have that are dedicated to data science? Is that sort of a sign of treating data as a business asset or, or are they saying, are they using data to drive new corporate strategy or to derive new products? It's a little hard to interpret this business assets terminology here. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, um, it's, and, and the other thing about the survey too is they're trying to assess this across time. Um, like they had the first survey in 2012 and I think they said they were doing it every year and it, it could be the sort of thing that where how um, an executive interprets these terms changes across year. Like their, um, uh -huh. like their standard for these different markers might um, be getting higher. So just even more difficult to attain rather than having that same standard or marker back as um, they did in 2012. But, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I mean, back to your question about um, data as an asset, I, I think you could also imagine that depending on the particular industry of the company, the data may be valuable, but it also might be in part a liability due to things like privacy concerns and like identity theft. So maybe it's just not clearly classified as an asset or it could be classified multiple ways. So they said they're not treating it as an asset. But. Yeah, and that, that makes sense because of all this bad press we're hearing lately about how data is abused with a lot of these household name companies, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's certainly true. And you mentioned something about like looking at trends over time. So in the article, it seems like they also noted the percentage of firms identifying themselves as data-driven has seen a decline, 37.1% in 2017 down to 32.4% in 2018, and now 31%. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting because, so given that noted decline, um, they also note that investment in big data slash AI is up 40% from last year. 
so now over um, over 50 million, I, I believe, I'm assuming per company. Um, wow. Yeah, so they also report that 93% of the survey respondents said that people and process issues are the main obstacle in the ability for that their business to actually adopt this new culture. And so I thought that was interesting because instead of it being actually like uh, technology obstacles, it was actually the people and process issues. Yeah. And I wonder how we would interpret that again, because is it just that people are disagreeing with being more big data or AI focused in the company, or is it because hiring people who are experienced enough to help companies revolutionize that that's a really hard thing to do given how the job market is so sort of saturated right now mm-hmm. yeah that's a great question and and i suppose it could be um it could be both of those things um playing into this or perhaps um you know there are just people that are already in the company who don't feel comfortable with that sort of um shift or or even just their understanding of data science or statistics or ai you know, how often when we meet people, for example, on a plane, and if they ask what we do, if we say, oh, we're statisticians or statistics or whatever, I get a response like, oh, I hated statistics in college. I got, you know, and then they'll say some grade below a B. Um, but you if gotta you say you're a data scientist, Jesse. If you I know, I know. I, that's, <laughs> I, I, I've not had the opportunity yet to say that, but I, I think that is, that will be my new response. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but if this attitude is what makes up a significant portion of a, a company's employees, um, they may just, I don't know, feel that they don't have the background to understand the changes, and so they might be more reluctant to make the changes. Um, so if they don't have the background or, I mean, maybe they just never learned about the the power of statistics and data science and AI and computer science, et cetera, because, um, I mean, it certainly wasn't, I would say, generally taught even, you know, two decades ago. Mm, a decade ago even maybe. So were there any positive outcomes from the survey? Uh, Yes, in the MVP report, they do mention a few positives. Um, They note that um, this year had a higher response rate than before, which I mean, they suggest at least is because executives think the topic is important. Yay, we have a larger sample size. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. and okay, so some of the, the positive outcomes, let's see, um, there are several. So uh, first, 90% of the C-level executives who completed the survey, so um, it seemed like all, all of the respondents were the C-level executives, but 90% of them were actually classified as chief data officers, chief analytics officers, or chief information officers. And so I guess a decade ago, only one of these jobs even existed of the, of the survey respondents. So, uh, so they're creating, I guess, more of, of these um, high-level executive roles focusing on data and analytics and information. Um, they said 92% of the respondents are increasing their pace of investment in big data and AI. So there's... Um, more, more funds and um, resources are, are being put towards these sort of initiatives. And um, also 31% of the respondents um, said that they do have a data-driven organization and 28% said that they do have a, a data culture. So granted, you know, these are minorities, but, um, but perhaps it's still impressive that nearly a third of the organizations have brought about um, these seemingly major transformations within their company. 
Well, I think it's certainly a great start and it's pointing in the right direction. So maybe we'll check in next year and see how the numbers change. <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.